Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. Good morning. Yesterday, uh, we were in Luke chapter 10 on December the 10th, and that includes the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so I just frankly uh, find myself completely unable to resist telling you this good neighbor story this morning out of Florida. So one neighbor went and uh, found out this is in Gulf Breeze, Florida. If you want to check it out. Business owner Michael Esmond. He went and he found out that there were 114 families in his community who were at risk of having their utilities shut off. And so according to the Gulf Breeze utility supervisor, uh, Esmond paid the $7,615.40 to cover the expense of the bills, the outstanding bills of 114 families in the neighborhood where his business operates. Um, there, so there's 114 past due bills um, that were going, and there's, those utilities were going to be shut off over the holidays. Um, and instead of getting shutoff notices, they got holiday cards notifying the families that their utility bills had been paid by their neighbor. Uh, so I want to use that this morning as an, an encouragement um, to you, whichever side of that story you happen to be on. Um, Maybe you are on the side of that story where you fear your utilities are going to be cut off over the holidays. Um, Let us pray that God lifts up a neighbor. Maybe you are the neighbor um, whom God has blessed this year um, in a particular way, and you are in a position to, by extension, bless others, pass along the blessings that you have received. We have something going on right now at MyFaithRadio.com called The Great Giveaway, um, and it this would be a really good example of the kinds of acts of kindness that we want to encourage you to do. Maybe um, for you, it's paying the bill of one neighbor. Uh, maybe it's not paying the bills of 114, but um, you know what capacity God has given you, and so I just encourage you this morning, participate with us in the great giveaway of the goodness of God to others. You can you can formally join us at MyFaithRadio.com in the Great Giveaway, but you can obviously informally join us by simply extending the kindness that you have received from God to others. Uh, we are in Luke chapter 11 on this 11th day of December. The chapter opens by one of Jesus' disciples asking him, asking him, say, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And you're saying to yourself, that's not the Lord's Prayer as I learned it. Well, you probably learned it from the way Matthew uh, offers it in his gospel. And we have to assume 
uh, I think it's fair to assume that this is not the one and only time that a disciple asks Jesus, um, hey, you know, we notice that you go off and spend a lot of time with the Father one-on-one, um, and as your disciples, we want to learn from you. We want our lives to be patterned after your life. Um, what are you praying when you pray? Like, teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we acknowledge that thine is the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The 11th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke um, has incredible encouragement and teaching for us on all kinds of things. Asking, seeking, and knocking, trusting that God is good to give. Uh, it is, uh, uh, there, there's, there's an echo of, of the Old Testament where Jesus teaches on the sign of, of Jonah. Um, Jesus teaches on, uh, on the light. And then he also, you know, speaks some woes to the Pharisees and lawyers at the close of the chapter um, at the very end of, of chapter 11 uh, of the Gospel of Luke, there are these two verses, and this is really where the cultural tide shifts against Jesus, where the cultural climate turns hostile to him. As Jesus went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard, to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. Let us be praying today as we live in the midst of cultural tides where, or cultural currents where um, people are constantly seeking to provoke Christians to say and do things that they might um, point out are not aligned with Jesus. Hey, nothing's really changed on that front. I just want you to be aware of that today. Matthew Hawkins is up next. He's a former policy director for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, served in Washington, D.C. He is going to help us catch up on some headlines from inside the beltway that's up next here on mornings with carmen joining me now matthew hawkins you can find him at matthewthawkins.com and on twitter at mthawk Matt, welcome back. Thanks, Carmen. Merry Christmas. Hey, Merry I think Christmas, this is man. This the last time I'm going to be here for the end of the year. Well, alrighty. Yes, the holidays and such. <clears throat> yes, the holidays and such. Whew, I'm I'm not quite ready. I mean, they, I have a room where I have all the gifts piled up, but none of them are yet uh, wrapped. And um, my, you know, there are my, 19 my, people, yeah. so it's a lot oh, of wrapping. Goodness. That's a lot of wrapping. My wife did most of our wrapping yesterday. I was pretty. <gasps> Does thrilled, she want to come excited. over? And I have all the supplies. <laughs> it's, it's a sacrifice. It's an act of sacrifice for her to wrap gifts. Or was it yesterday? Uh, Wednesday. Maybe Wednesday. I love that. I love that. Well, hats off to her because that's awesome. Okay, so um, and it is fun. It's fun, right, to see them accumulating under the tree. I actually yeah, have some that, that really um. Really cute bags and empty boxes under the tree right now. Just so there's, it's not empty, and there's nothing in them. It's just complete, it, but it's it still looks pretty. Okay, so um, let's talk about some of the uh, announcements that are coming out of 
the Biden administration, uh, the incoming anticipate we anticipated the incoming administration. Um, talk with us about um, Xavier Becerra. Why do we recognize yeah. that name, and why do we need to pay attention to this one particular potential nomination? Yes, well, Becerra is a name that, with uh, for many pro-lifers, uh, particularly the nerds among us who pay attention to policy stuff, um, it, it's a well-known name for a really negative reason. Um, backing up a little bit, naturally, this is the season in which uh, a new incoming administration starts uh, publishing names of people they would like to appoint to uh, various federal agencies. Um, and one we're talking about now is for Health and Human Services, which uh, naturally is the administration. Uh, body that executes laws like the uh, Affordable Care Act and uh, issues like um, policy issues like uh, abortion related policies according to uh, federal law. And um, so naturally for the past four years under the Trump administration, um, conservatives have been pretty pleased that HHS has kind of been a bright spot uh, for social conservatives with respect to the federal government. Um, we had a lot of allies uh, running, running the show. Um, and people who are really sensitive to issues of religious freedom and freedom of conscience and uh, where those issues intersect with the abortion practice and abortion funding. Um, Javier Becerra is the attorney general for California. And he's uh, people like me are getting a are reacting negatively because he was one of the people who, along with Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, spearheaded the prosecution of David Daleiden, who is a pro-life uh, activist who, um, if listeners will recall, back in 2015, um, they did basically undercover camera work and exposed Planned Parenthood in the sale of aborted baby parts. Mm -hmm. And Becerra and Harris, the, uh, the California uh, government, did not investigate Planned Parenthood for those breaches. Um, instead, they investigated and prosecuted uh, David Daleiden um, and uh, for uh, doing what we often praise, which is undercover uh, journalistic um, efforts. Um, you know, when they, when when folks expose uh, puppy mills and uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, unethical practices in. Um, uh, in agriculture, uh, investigative journalists are often praised, um, but not so when they expose abortion uh, clinics for uh, breaking law and and dealing literally in human flesh. Um, and so the fact that uh, Javier Becerra is uh, Biden's uh, desired appointee to run Health and Human Services is really uh, an indication of what a lot of us feared anyway, which is that Biden um, talked a good game on moderation, but in practice, his administration was going to be pretty leftist on abortion. And uh, this kind of appointment in the in the phrase uh, personnel is policy, uh, Becerra is really not not a helpful, uh, not an encouraging note um, for a, a president-elect who says he wants to govern for all Americans. So we're disappointed, um, but frankly, not all that terribly surprised. Um, it is interesting as from a policy perspective, Becerra doesn't really have much of a, a background in healthcare. Um, and so um, some people are kind of scratching their heads about that, bringing an attorney general in to 
uh, run health and human services. Um, I'm not one that believes that you have to have a, a, an MD to run health and human services. This is an executive, you know, administration position. Um, but uh, it is it, some people are still scratching their heads just as a matter of expertise um, coming in to run that run that thing. So, uh, meanwhile, meanwhile, <laughs> well, let me let me let there, me pause there for let me pause there for a second and just. Um, and say that uh, in the meantime, progressives are complaining that um, the, the the choices are not progressive enough. Bernie Sanders right. uh, is out there, you know, leading and and AOC leading the way, saying, you know, hey, you you need to dance with the one, ones who brung you. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of complaint over there. But we're also hearing that the Biden administration intends to create a position reaching out to people who didn't right. vote for us. That's the quote. Um, an outreach to conservatives. So when we come back from a very brief break, Matt Hawkins is going to brief us in on um, presumptive president-elect Joe Biden's plan to reach out to those who didn't vote for the Democrats. Um, So we're going to talk about that in just a moment. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, Matt Hawkins and I are continuing our conversation about some headlines out out of the uh, out of the Beltway, which is Washington D.C. Um, tell us um, tell us what you know about the Biden administration creating a position to reach out to conservatives. I know yeah. that a a member of Congress has left Congress to head up the Office of Public Engagement and to reach out to conservatives. Tell us about that. Yeah. So. Um, it, in contrast to the conversation we just had, um, it's a little discontinuous. Um, Cedric Richmond is a Louisiana congressman, and he's going to lead an effort um, for the Biden administration to, I think, create. He's not filling the position. I think they're going to. He's announced that they're going to create a position um, that is basically intended to uh, reach out to conservatives um, from the White House and. Uh, Richmond basically heads up uh, an office of public engagement um, for Biden, which is pretty common for uh, for um, for presidents to have in the White House. Um, So it sounds to me this is being reported in Bloomberg. And on the one hand, that's encouraging. I mean, you do want to see you do want a president, um, I think, uh, to at least uh, interact with people who didn't vote for them. I think that the responsible thing for any president to do, uh, even if the areas of agreement and co- collaboration are limited, I think you still want that dialogue uh, with people. And I think it's wise for an administration to have uh, some kind of some kind of uh, communication, some kind of a doorway in which they can hear um, from you know, critics who are you know charitable and willing to um, willing to engage the office. Um, I'm I'm not one who believes you you know we as advocates need to have to abandon, uh, you know when our abandon uh, advocacy and communication with the White House when when our guy quote unquote is not in the office. Um, so I think it's a it's a good sign. Uh, but I just think adjacent to this announcement on Becerra, it's kind of a head scratcher. Um, so it sounds to me like, you know, this is being reported in Bloomberg. They may mean uh, fiscal conservatives. Um, so this is being reported in the context of outreach to CEOs and business leaders. And so Biden may have some success outreaching to uh, fiscal conservatives, uh, particularly on Wall Street. Um, but it sounds like like, 
you know, in, in reflecting on the Becerra choice, he's going to leave social conservatives kind of in the dark, which is really unfortunate. That, that would have been an opportunity, a really key opportunity uh, for the Biden administration, the incoming Biden administration to, uh, uh, you know, extend an olive branch <laughs> um, right. to, uh, to those so of us who... Yeah. So, I, so this is the know. curiosity to me. This is the curiosity to me because in the language of, um, uh, of at least some, right? I'm I'm, I'm reading quotes directly out of the article here. In the language yeah. of some, uh, here's here's a quote: "We're not elected just to help Democrats or urban cities or minorities. We were elected to help this entire country, and that means reaching out to conservatives. That means reaching out to rural areas, reaching out to yeah. people who didn't vote for us." That sounds like social conservatives. However, if you scroll down to the actual like plans of this individual, yeah. it's absolutely an outreach to fiscal conservatives. It's absolutely an outreach to people in positions of of decision making at the corporate level, right. talking about private sector engagement, talking about chief executive officers. I got to tell you that, you know, the CEOs out here in rural America are probably not the ones um, that they're right. talking about engaging with. And they are talking about infrastructure, that being um, a point where, sure. you know, maybe everybody can agree we need um, we need some development. But when you when you look a little deeper, um, the language is to uh, create jobs, yep. giving people a seat they deserve at the table. Um, but then the language of uh, being sure that we are making the nation, uh, making the country greener and cleaner. That's the infrastructure plan, a greener and cleaner yeah. infrastructure. So just I just think people need to, you know, you know, let, let's be let's just be awake and let's recognize that every invitation to the table for a seat at the table um, is, you know, not equal. It is just not. Yeah. And, and rightly so. Yeah. We have yeah. talked uh, we talked at length about the fact that um, uh, elections have consequences. <laughs> I mean, right. Yeah. <laughs> elections yeah. have consequences. Yeah. And this is and one of them. Yeah, elections have consequences. And for, you know, those of us who are listening to this chatter, uh, we need to have our eyes wide open here. And frankly, um, for those who do get the invite uh, to be at the table and, uh, you know, I think they have a responsibility to look out uh, for those of us, even in an informal way, uh, to look out for folks who uh, are not seated at the table. Um, and so you, you have a situation where sometimes uh, an orbit of uh, age of advocacy groups are let in the door uh, and then uh, other advocacy groups are not are kind of left out. And so you kind of have to have a really great network to get some stuff done and, and to be on the leading edge of information when public policy stuff is being is being crafted. You know, I was in a situation where um, a number of us as religious groups, Catholics and Baptists and kind of, you know, organizations who tackle a bunch of different issues, um, we were invited to the table and had access to the Speaker of the House um, when there were some um, – uh, the adoption – some adoption-related policy was being questioned. But uh, adoption – specific organizations actually were left out uh, and and didn't have a seat at, at the table during a really couple of crucial weeks. And so this stuff ebbs and flows. And so you got to have to have uh, a really great network of people. So hopefully business leaders, um, fiscal conservatives who do get a seat at the table within the Biden administration, um, hopefully they will uh, be looking out for the social conservatives as well uh, if there's really any unity within our movement. So those are things that are concerning to us. Um, as we look at uh, a likely incoming administration. 
All right. Uh, I had hoped we'd have time today to talk about um, the Department of Homeland Security beginning to accept new DACA applicants following a yes. court order. But we're, but we're out of time. So we're out of time. I, well, I don't know. We've got news. one minute. You think we can talk about it in one minute? Give us the one DACA minute brief. Prefer- Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. This is an immigration policy that started by the Obama administration. Um, On the one hand, I am very sympathetic to the policy. We like it. I wish uh, Congress had done it instead of a... unilateral decision uh, by the Obama administration, which has tied this up uh, in legal battles. Um, But basically, uh, DACA is for um, people, human beings, just like you and me, who um, find themselves in the United States uh, with an illegal status because uh, their parents brought them here um, illegally. Um, So they're here illegally, but due to no fault or action on their own. And so DACA is an attempt to get them um, access to education education and jobs without fearing um, without fearing law enforcement. Um, DACA in and of itself on the merits is a good thing for our country to do. Um, there are almost as many people enrolled in DACA right now across the United States as the population of Metro Nashville, uh, just to give you a sense of the, the need that is there um, because the U.S. frankly has been inconsistent and, uh, uh, in, in applying immigration policy um, for many decades across many different um, uh, administrations. And so DACA is a good thing to continue, um, and DHS is now accepting new applications for that status. All right. Good job. Good job. Way to to get it in there in a minute. I appreciate it. That's Matthew Hawkins. You can find him online at MatthewTHawkins.com. Hey, Merry Christmas, man. We'll talk with you in the new year. Merry Christmas. See y'all in the It's a good year. sign. It's a good sign when we get to start saying that. That's a good sign. That's it's right. a good sign of the of the weeks to come. All right. Blessed blessed uh, blessed Christmas to you and yours. You too. We'll be right back. got so much going on in the world um, right now related to technology. Actually, in the second half of hour two today, I'm going to be talking with Rod Dreher, and one of the portions of that conversation is about whether or not we should be using smartphones and smart technology and have devices like uh, Alexa and Google Home um, inviting the surveillance state right inside. Um, uh, but this, uh, this half hour, we're going to be talking with Chris Martin. And Chris is um, not only our social media guy, he's also our technology guy. And so we're going to be talking with Chris about a number of headlines related to social media and technology. Um, And maybe the booming headline that's out there right now is related to Facebook being sued by the U.S. government for being a monopoly and how social media sentiment is changing over time. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. A teen spiraling out of control can add tension to every aspect of life, including your marriage. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Here's a fact. A troubled teen will add a heap of stress to any marital relationship. The key, then, is preventing that hardship from jeopardizing and destroying your marriage. If things are getting harder than you expected, don't forget the mentality you and your spouse had at the very beginning. Parenting is a team sport, and you too are on the same team. When you first chose to have children, you knew you weren't signing up for an easy journey. Finally, remember your shared goal. Keep your gaze focused on the other side of the struggle. All seasons eventually pass, and this one will too. On Facebook, 
Find Mark Gregston's page and look for parenting tips there. You'll also find him online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Joining me now, Chris Martin, editor for Moody Press and a social media consultant. You will enjoy his blog. It's called termsofservice.substack.com. Chris, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. <clears throat> Can you just explain what's going on with Facebook and the U.S. government? Yeah. Um, Thank you. I mean, as, as best I can, not being a lawyer, <laughs> but I, I understand social media. Oh, that's and that's good. I've been, we need a non-lawyer. We need the yeah, non-lawyer right. explanation. <laughs> right. So just if there are any lawyers listening, sorry if I misstate something about this legal case. But um, basically, you have uh, the Federal Trade Commission and more than 40 states accusing Facebook uh, this past week of buying up its rivals to illegally squash competition, uh, and their Facebook is being sued uh, by the FTC and uh, I think it's 46 states and a, their attorneys general um, for being a monopoly, lack of – in layman's terms, uh, for being – for violating anti antitrust law. Basically, if you don't know what any of that means, um, the government is saying to Facebook, hey, you have created – a marketplace in the social media space that um, is so dominated by you, it ultimately hurts the consumer. And so when it comes to I'm, – I'm definitely not the person to uh, evaluate whether or not I think uh, the FTC and the attorneys general from these 46 states have a – you know could win. Um, I've always said, I think even on this show, that Facebook – is a monopoly in the at least um, layman's understanding of the term. Uh, they back in 2011, which was nine years ago, but I think is still relevant and accurate today. Facebook itself boasted that it was 95% of the social media market, um, and the reason the FTC and these attorneys general are suing Facebook for violating antitrust law and for being a monopoly is because. When you have a monopoly in any industry, um, but including something like social media, which is so uh, influential in our life today, um, you create a situation in which the consumer, or in this case for social media, the user is negatively affected in possibly some pretty serious ways. When a company doesn't face any real competition, it is more free to do bad things than if it faces competition naturally i mean if you just think about that logically if you have if you had four equally competitive social media giants that all had pretty significant sway not only with users but also with advertisers then those four companies would really have to keep their ducks in a row and not step out of line and not do anything that would violate the trust or privacy of of its users because if one of those four made some major missteps or took advantage of its users in any way, then the other three would kind of gobble it up, you know, and it would it would feel the pressure of competition and to keep keep itself in line. Well, when you have a company like Facebook that um, every time it has seen competition, it has attempted to purchase it. And in a couple of cases, namely Instagram and WhatsApp, it has purchased its competition. Uh, and theoretically, uh, some people say it has 
uh, hindered it, when it purchased those companies. It actually hindered those companies from becoming uh, what they could have been because it worked so hard to bring them into the Facebook fold, but keep them subservient to Facebook. Um, and so you have a situation in which Facebook, which has is experiencing uh, less public trust than it ever has, um, is controlling more than two thirds, I would say closer to that 90% of the social media market, especially when it comes to advertising. Uh, and um, more people, more companies or marketing folks uh, advertise on Facebook than any other platform. And part of the reason is, is because it can violate privacy of its users because users don't really have a whole lot of other options to connect with people around the world uh, in the way that they can on Facebook. And so um, I think the case against Facebook is strong. I think certainly whether it is legally or not from a user perspective, I'm glad that the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission and these 46 states attorneys general are pursuing this because um, I think a lot of users, as I've just written in my book and have said multiple times on this show before, I think a lot of people don't realize the ways in which Facebook is negatively affecting them. And I think the more that we can pursue action like this against Facebook, the more that will be brought to light and the more we can kind of free ourselves from a company that has routinely flouted its users' privacy simply because there was no competitor that may call it to account. Accountability seems to be the big uh, one of the big conversations. I think the other, um, you know, the other thing we you you help us recognize, but we often fail to recognize is just how powerful a handful of companies have become, Facebook among them, um, and how much influence and and control they have um, over our lives, the information that we receive, um, the information that we have the ability to share with others. Um, and how integral a part of life they have become. And I know that's probably a conversation for another day, but that seems to me to be the um, somewhere on the edge of the conversation that we're trying to have about accountability as well. Yeah, certainly. Um, and, and what's funny is when Facebook launched back in 2004, it differentiated itself uh, from other social media platforms that existed at the time, namely MySpace, uh, by being more private. Uh, when it launched, it said, um, we do not and will not use uh, code to track you around the Internet uh, for for any of our private users. And it and uh, when you created a Facebook profile, it could only be seen by your friends or people at the same school, which is verified by your edu email address. And Facebook knew it couldn't flaunt privacy back then because it was the newcomer onto the scene. And it knew that uh, the leaders of Facebook knew that if <clears throat> they played fast and loose with privacy, they wouldn't gain the trust of people. But now that they're the, you know, the gorilla in the in the room, as it were, um, they know that they can kind of do what they want. And I'm glad that somebody is starting to hold them accountable to that. And so I think it's important for us to keep an eye on this and just to always be aware of of um, the power these companies, namely Facebook, disproportionately more than the others hold over us for sure. And in the same way that Facebook can change its terms of service pretty easily, they can really easily change their algorithms in terms of um, what you see and what you don't see. Apparently, Facebook is now uh, has a new alg algorithm to rate hate, and it's apparently okay to hate some people but not other people on Facebook. 
Yeah, that's what, yeah. That's the, the way I read this. Deprioritizing hate against some while prioritizing hate against others. Right. Yeah, it's I've read a little bit on this new hate speech um uh the rules uh that they're they're trying to curb curb hate speech. Um Facebook puts a higher priority on detecting and deleting racist slurs and hate speech against black people, Muslims, Jews, the LGBTQ community, and people of more than one race, then on statements such as white people are stupid and men are pigs. Um, mm. And so they have said, uh, a Facebook spokes, spokesperson has said, we focus our technology on finding hate speech that users and experts tell us is the most serious. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see um, – how Facebook reconciles this uh, over the summer amidst all of the uh, unrest and protesting and and conversation that was happening about racism. Um, Facebook internally had a lot of conflict because Facebook employees were saying that the company wasn't doing enough to stop um, hate speech, specifically against minorities on its platform. And I think that I think those employees are correct. Now, I would disagree with those employees on a lot of other things. Um, but Facebook, what a lot of people don't realize is um, Facebook and all social media, but Facebook, again, because it's the most disproportionately influential, has always been a crucible of hatred for people. Because when you get hundreds of millions, billions of people onto a single platform, uh, what we know as Christians is all of these people are sinful. And so our default mode of using social media is going to be use, using it not for the building up of others, but for the tearing down of others. And for a lot of people, uh, racial slurs or other hate speech are not off limits uh, for that. And so Facebook has often taken a hands-off approach to those things unless it gets particularly like you know, related to violence or sharing personal information about people that shouldn't be shared. But a lot of times language or certainly things that all of us would agree would be hate speech, um, specifically against minorities, has been largely unmoderated. Um, and so I think it is important for Facebook to kind of have a reckoning with that. But with all things, when you start to moralize content uh, and say, this is okay, this is not, you're going to start to approach a line that um, – there's going to be significant disagreement about what is hate speech and what is not specifically around issues uh, of that are more political in nature. Um, but I do think that for a long time, Facebook has too has had too much of a hands off approach with racist hate speech. Um, and so I'm glad to see them making some strides in that way. And I think that was brutally clear this summer. Um, but I do think we're going to have to keep an eye on how does that start to affect some other areas that may be considered hate speech um, by some folks, but not by others. And that's where there's going to start to be some conflict. But I don't think it's an all or nothing. I don't think we say uh, because Facebook could start to regulate speech that some think is hate speech and some things isn't. They shouldn't regulate anything. I don't think that's the right answer. And so I do think there is some moderation that needs to be taking place. Um, and I'm confident, uh, while I don't trust Facebook with a lot, I'm confident in their ability to get a diversity of voices at a table. They've done that with political content in the past. Uh, and so I'm interested to see how they handle that moderation moving mm -hmm. forward. But it's definitely worth watching. All right, we got to take a very brief break. When we come back, Chris Martin and I are going to uh, ask the question, 
Um, does social media still thrill you or, you know, frankly, ugh, does it feel like a burden? And then I'm going to ask him about GPT-3 and why we should care. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Silent night, holy night. All right, I drive a G37. I love R2-D2 and C-3PO, but I don't know what GPT-3 is. Chris Martin, what is it and why should I care? Yeah, so this is a bit out of my depth. I'm not the AI guy. That's my buddy Jason <laughs> Thacker. Uh, yeah, that's my friend Jason Thacker. Who lives uh, oh, who we love. What I do here. Yes, he's great. Um, so he would be the best person to talk about this at some point. But I was reading. Um, I read a blog website place called One Zero. It's on Medium. It's like a magazine within Medium, kind of, which is a site where there are a lot of like magazines and blogs. Um, and it talks a lot about social media, a lot about tech stuff generally. And I came across this article uh, the other day, earlier this week, I think. And um, it was about a new AI development, which I usually ignore AI developments because everybody shares those viral videos of like the robots opening doors or whatever mm -hmm. on Facebook mm -hmm. or so. And I'm just like, okay, everyone, everyone wants to, I have this long running theory. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail. I have this long running theory that everybody in the world or people who share videos like that on social media want to feel like they live in an action movie. <laughs> um, which is why I think the pandemic has sort of been exciting to a lot of people because it's made their lives more interesting. And they're like, wow, we're like living in a pandemic. This is crazy. Or like the whole monolith phenomenon. Have you seen that mm -hmm, thing? Where like, mm -hmm, yeah. And everyone's like, Ooh, what could it mean? And I'm like, dude, it's just people looking to get attention. I could go stick mm -hmm. a butter knife in the ground in my backyard until you a monolith has appeared in my backyard. Um, but the, uh, I think a lot of people are obsessed with AI because they want to live in the old Will Smith movie, I robot where like, Oh man, the robots are going to yes. take over. Um, and a lot of times it's just like, it's not really as far along as you think it is. However, when I read this, this, um, GPT three is a landmark artificial intelligence technology from open AI. It is basically from what I gathered, it's been imported with an incredible amount of information and it's, uh, it's, been trained on a system of nearly all the public texts created by humanity through October 2019. So it knows nothing of the pandemic. Um, this included the entirety of Wikipedia, tens of millions of books, and over one trillion words posted to Twitter, other social networks, and the public internet. The end result, I'm reading a little bit of this article here, is an artificial intelligence system that has access to a massive chunk of the thoughts, facts, and opinions that humans have ever put into words and published, as well as the ability to generalize from these sources, find connections between them, and process them mathematically. So the guy, uh, Thomas Smith, who's the founder and CEO of Gado Images, uh, who he, I think he takes and restores old images and tries to like identify people in them throughout history and stuff. He was like, uh, it's the most revolutionary AI he's ever seen. And he likened it to when the Lumiere brothers embarked on creating the uh, film uh, the film industry by showing the a 50 second clip of a train leaving a, a station, a train station in Southern France. And when those guys showed that on a screen for the first time, and this train is kind of like coming toward the, 
the videographer on this uh, as you're watching the the movie, this 50 second movie that was like the first movie ever created. He said when people watch that film, that 50 second film for the first time and the train is coming toward the screen, they they jumped or, or ducked out of the way because they were somehow afraid that the train was going to come through the screen at them. And he said uh, a lot of people, you know, saw that 50 second video clip that that first movie and said this is going to change the media industry as we know it. And Thomas Smith, the author of this article, has interacted with this uh, AI platform and has said this. I have the same feeling about this as those people had about that 50 second video clip. He said it could change everything. And basically it's exciting in that uh, it could generate an amount of like written content in a way that could be really helpful for solving problems or things like that. But it's also pretty scary because you could feed it some amount of information and it could generate, uh, you know, a fake news article or a, um, you know, an impersonation of a public figure or things like that. So anyway, it's a really interesting article if you just Google like one zero GPT three. Well, or if and, you just uh, go to if you just go to um, Chris's website, termsofservice.substack.com and you scroll down to link number three in the hitting the links portion then yes. you can get uh, Chris's Chris's thoughts uh, yeah. intermixed intermixed with the relevant uh, portions of of the article. Okay, I have one more question, and we're almost out of time. It's yeah. baby's first Christmas. Yeah. Are you yes. so so having so much fun at your house? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fun. Uh, she's at this. Uh, so my daughter Mag- Maggie Magnolia uh, is eight months old as of <laughs> um, a week ago. <laughs> And so she's she's at a. Is she at the stage where you just like just want to squeeze her? Is she like that? Like you're just like I just got to have that baby, and I just want to squeeze it. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, Mm -hmm. and she's very smiley, and she's very uh, happy. Unless she's hungry or tired, she's happy all the time. Uh, But she she's a little young to like really grasp Christmas yet. Oh sure, no next year. Next year is yeah. Next year is is the literally grasping Christmas. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. But she loves the tree and she loves the lights and all of that. So it's been fun. It's been good. Okay. Have you taken the picture where she's sitting? and you've got like lights sitting around her and she's like holding a couple of them because that seems to be like one of the pictures everybody needs to take of their baby. Yeah, I should tell my wife. I think she would yeah. be very interested in that. You know, I am so I am so anti social media that we don't. No, post no, I'm not saying for social media. I'm just saying that know, for you and your own preservation of the cuteness right. stage yeah, of we life. Should, we should yeah. try that. We have taken a picture of her like laying down in front of the Christmas tree, which was really funny, and <laughs> totally. funny and cool. But, uh, but yeah, we need to try it. that. All right. I just love it. I just love it. Okay. This, I just, I love babies and Christmas seems like a really good time to celebrate them. It being, you know, the baby time yes. of year. Okay, Chris, thank you as always so much. Um, appreciate you. Um, I think, you know, it's probably going to be the new year before we talk again. So Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Have a great one. Yeah, you too. We'll be right back. All right, we um, we have a whole other hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Uh, really exciting conversations planned with Adam Holtz and Rod Dreher about Live Not By Lies. Um, if for any reason you're hearing this on podcast and you were thinking you don't need to listen to the next hour, you do, um, because my conversation with Rod Dreher is going to be the be one that I am confident we are going to bookmark for history. Yep, that's how that's how good I think this conversation is going to be. All right, we will be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.